Uh, welcome to Whale Vomit. I'm Amber Ellie Frost, coming to you from rainy Brooklyn. Uh, and I'm Sam Chris, here in sunny London, where I am inside. Mm-hmm. How's it going there? I mean, we're shortly going to be going to all Spain, uh, which should be fun. It's been a while since we had a go at them. Yeah. Uh, and I look forward to uh, dying on the beaches rather than simply cluttering them up with my disgusting British body. <laughs> I look forward to uh, your war correspondence, where you just you just des- describe whatever disgusting thing you see for three pages. <laughs> I'll be the uh, the pro Spanish propaganda guy hidden in a cellar somewhere in Newcastle. Here it's been just sort of continuous, honestly. There's that, that that whole, like, you know, this is not normal, don't normalize Trump thing. I don't really know what that means other than, like, you know, spend your day in a consistent panic. But, I mean, it is, it's just, it's just kind of normal now. <laughs> the weather's been really terrible in New York, but we've all responded to it with a sort of defiant hedonism. We're refusing to go gently into that seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, we've been very resilient about partying because it's disgusting out. And, you know, it's the end of the world, so the parties are good. Brilliant. Here, I think uh, nothing will ever be normal again, so we can't even have fun with it. There, there wasn't even a, a, a moment of rupture. Well, fun was never really the British's forte, was uh, it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, our version of fun is uh, getting incredibly angry at something a politician did. Well, I mean, you're good at that. But you've been gone. We should go straight into our Fortnite and review abroad and jump straight into uh, your, your travels. Our uh, weird and dedicated listeners might have noticed that we didn't have an episode last week. And that's because I was in the land of my birth, the beautiful country of Israel. I haven't been for a while and I wouldn't have gone ordinarily if it weren't for a kind of family emergency because, you know, I'm a strong supporter of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and I don't regret it. It's one of the most disturbing and hideous places I've ever been to in my life and it makes it very strange to see, um, I mean, I don't know how it is where you are but here the uh, Israeli Tourism Board or whatever is putting a lot of effort into... uh, Pumping up Tel Aviv as this kind of young, free, wild, crazy place where you can go and party and lie on the beach. That's how they sell it to American Jews, yeah. Yeah, and like what it kind of actually is, is like a kind of bizarre Starship Troopers world. Or as I put it in my in my slightly offensive puns, Starship Troopers. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hippie festival being put on by the military. There are soldiers everywhere. And in Israel, if you're like a demobilized soldier, you still walk around with your gun. Like, like, like you know, the um, hot IDF girl thing where uh, media outlets kind of uh, post semi-pornographic pictures of Israeli soldiers posing with their weapons and their kind of green uniforms. Yes. Semi-jailbait 18-year-old heavily armed women are walking around everywhere with their machine guns. Yes, I know all Uh, about it. They're on the beach, they're in the cafes, they're in the shopping centres and everyone else you see is, I think once a year they're uh, called up to do another few months of military service. Uh, So it's this incredibly militarized society in which uh, a good portion of the population of constant PTSD from violently repressing a colonized population. But in their downtime, they all like to have fun. It's incredibly bizarre and disturbing. Obviously, people have written about this uh, in 
in length and in depth, but there's obviously the very strong politicization of, you know, Tel Aviv's at least, you know, very open attitude towards homosexuality. You know, the fact that you can have a, a gay pride parade in Tel Aviv and everyone's joining in and enjoying the carnival. And you couldn't do that anywhere else in the Middle East. And you probably couldn't. You couldn't do it in Jerusalem because the Orthodox Jews there will violently attack you. Uh, <laughs> and you can't do it in uh, Palestine. In many cases, particularly because the Israeli army likes to use gay Palestinians that they've picked up on as informers and then threaten to tell their families and the community about their sexuality unless they cooperate with them. So, uh, you know, that's that's, uh, really great. Uh, queer positive behavior from the Israeli state. Yes, queen. The walking around with gun things is really interesting to me because like that's a slight difference with, you know, American kind of, you know, institutionalized gun culture is that I might see someone with a giant gun in the subway mm. um, or, you know, in front of, um, you know, the, the uh, in front of the entrance or even on a corner, but I know that they are a cop um, there, I know that they're NYPD, um, and we still have that kind of strange, I, I guess it's left over from being like a British colony or something that like, we don't like the idea of soldiers walking around with big guns. You know, we don't like the idea of, of, um, you know, the military, um, just, you know, strolling around. Um, it's just, it's just not that common, um, but but we're fine with cops. We're fine with cops carrying military grade weapons because that's the, that's the city. I think it kind of descends from, you know, the kind of French revolutionary, a people in arms concept, you know, like have uh, very repressive Anglo-Saxon societies don't like the idea of a people of a people in arms because they don't trust the people. Whereas, you know, in in Israel, because, well, if you're Jewish, everyone is in the military in some sense or another and the people that they don't trust are you know the other half the people on the other side of the wall but you know like the uh, Israeli soldiers walking around Tel Aviv with guns they're not guarding anything they're not protecting anyone they're they're on the beach they're listening to Avicii through their phone it's uh, incredibly normalized yes yeah, speaking of the wall I saw this thing I think it's it's old but I love it every time it makes the rounds but where um uh Banksy had done some mural on the wall and some Palestinian oh, yeah. man had said, you've made the wall beautiful. And he's like, thank you. He's like, we hate the wall. We don't make it beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> Go home, I think. He yeah, said. he's like, go home. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't want him either. Um, so where is he going to go? He's the true man without a country, Banksy. No one wants him. People in LA like him. Ugh, that place. But yeah, speaking of the wall, I was also in uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is also terrible. It's an awful place. It's kind of actually the most kind of postmodern city on the planet. I think it would give Disneyland to run for its money. The building ordinances there basically mandate that every single building in the entire city, apart from in industrial suburbs, has to be coated in, you know, the famous golden Jerusalem stone, which means that you're kind of, you know, you're walking through West Jerusalem and you see shopping centres and banks and skate parks and they're all made out to look like a kind of third century BC temple which is part of the <laughs> the general project of uh, establishing this kind of continuity between the historic Jewish kingdom of Israel and the kind of 
bizarre half American monstrosity that lives there today. Um, there's an excellent book actually by uh, a Israeli architect, uh, A.L. Weissman, called Hollow Land. I probably mispronounced that. Uh, Hollow Land, Israel's Architecture of Occupation. Uh, and he describes the uh, building policy in Jerusalem as being Medusa's stair because it just turns everything into stone. Nice, nice. I just always assumed that that aesthetic was just to attract like American evangelical tourists. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It absolutely is. Um, it, it's it's aimed at my grandparents. That's what they want Israel to look like. Well, it's it's about this construction of the idea of this holy and indivisible city of Jerusalem, um, which basically means everything that's built in Jerusalem stone, wherever it might be. So the Palestinian East Jerusalem is just ringed by all of these brand new Israeli settlements, um, which, you know, they're all made from money raised by fucking like like Las Vegas gambling moguls. And actually, a lot of the stuff I see in, in Jerusalem has a little sign saying it was donated by some nice Jewish family in North America, like uh, like. Uh, like half of the little police buggies that you see going through the occupied territory are from Mr. and Mrs. Cooperman of Toronto, Canada, who done a really great job there. Thanks, guys. Weird. Um, <laughs> but but you know the the indivisible and holy and ancient city of Jerusalem extends precisely as far as the Israeli planners and builders want it to extend. That has to like inspire some kind of you know national insecurity, though. If you see like okay. I- we're literally cobbled together by, you know, um, Jews in absentia. Mm. I mean, that doesn't really well, I mean, give I've... give the impression of, uh, you know, Israel as like a strong, autonomous military power. Uh, I mean, I've, I've written on this before, but I think that some of the attitudes in uh, Israeli Jews seems to be that, you know, they have two colonized populations. They have the Palestinian population who they colonize with just incredible violence and dehumanization but then there's also the kind of diaspora jewish population and they are in a way also colonized you know there are uh, israeli institutions in every jewish community everywhere in the world whose sole mission is to make sure that all the kids grow up into kind of nice believing zionists so i think for them it's less uh, it's less oh we're dependent on essentially remittances from diaspora jews and more more the sense of like uh, the poor wretches who are left out in the diaspora they're giving us our uh, our tribute which we deserve as the capital of the Jewish world yeah uh, but it it sounds like a really surreal place also because it's um, sunshiny and yeah. has really lovely weather which I think I mean it's, it's lovely I think weather, it's very really. I find that I find that climate very stressful honestly. well I mean it's not a it's not a climate for Jews to live in frankly you know like in Jerusalem especially you walk around and you see all these guys <laughs> and like like they're dressed for a Polish winter they've got like enormous fur lined hats and they're kind of deathly pale oh they do the hats overcoats. yeah yeah well it's it's tradition, I saw an ad for the hats in they... Bushwick the other day and I couldn't read it because it was all in Yiddish but I was like oh shit I could buy a hat <laughs> like I you know they're they're going public with the advertising now. You know they're insanely expensive. It's what Jewish clans do to kind of get revenge on each other. It's like the way that the Amish cut each other's beards off. Orthodox Jews will just steal each other's hats. Oh, that was a that was a good article in the New York Times actually the other day about um, 
ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York who are trying to leave the community and oh, yeah, lead normal bad. lives. And they find it incredibly difficult. You yeah. know, they uh, they don't know when to kiss on a date. They find it, uh, uh, well, you know, because they don't watch TV and they're not allowed to use the internet. Um, yeah. But in, but in, in Jerusalem it's particular bizarre because it's like an entire city of essentially just that. Um, and it's a kind of large, modern, bustling metropolis full of bizarre religious fanatics who are engaged in this kind of monstrous colonial project. But the way they do it is by leading kind of bourgeois lives in silly costume. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to reveal my extreme middle American goyish rubishness here. But how far is Tel Aviv from Jerusalem? Well, it's a tiny country, so it's like a, an hour and a half bus journey. Right. So, again, they're close to a, a city that kind of prides itself on its cosmopolitanism, dubious though that cosmopolitanism mm. may be. Uh, they have pogroms, you know, they have uh, not anti-Jewish <laughs> pogroms, it's the Jews against the Africans. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, well, like, uh, like I have relatives there who, um, in Tel Aviv, who in the last... Uh, uh, Gaza massacre they uh, went on the streets and protested against it and and protests in Tel Aviv were attacked by right wingers with clubs and backs and and like concrete bricks and stuff you know it's not it's not the liberal paradise that it's always made out to be well I mean this is a fantastic segue into uh, the third place I went in Israel and the Palestinian territories which is Hebron which is a uh, Beautiful old Arab town, which has been absolutely destroyed by Jewish settlement, where they've, um, uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, they just kind of started occupying homes in the centre of Hebron. And now the entire centre of the town is this bizarre wasteland, which has been... which, which, uh, apart from a very few of them, all of the Palestinian residents have been moved out, uh, and the number of settlers and the number of IDF soldiers there to quote unquote protect them is roughly equal. Uh, and this is the area which used to be the kind of vegetable, uh, fruit and meat markets, and it's been entirely cleansed of life. It's like a kind of, uh, it's like a kind of Will Smith post-apocalyptic scenario. Well, as we were visiting, they kept on walking around and uh, shouting at us in Hebrew for... What, uh, were you wearing a Fuck Israel t-shirt? Like, what, uh, what... How are you antagonizing? How are you antagonizing the <laughs> Jews, Sam? Uh, we were with a group called uh, Breaking the Silence, who are former IDF soldiers who are kind of speaking out against the abuses of the occupation, and they run kind of regular mm-hmm. tours into the occupied territories. Uh, and so the settlers knew exactly who they were because they uh, they recognised the guides. Uh, and so as we were kind of walking around the ruins of what used to be Hebron, they were driving round in, you, you know, like those little motor tricycle things? Uh, they were driving around in those, all of which no. had a little message but on them. what you are describing sounds hilarious. <laughs> well, all of them had little messages of them, you know, saying genuinely donated by Mr. and Mrs. Radowski of Long, Le- Long Neck, New York. Yeah, the, the diaspora's doing yeah, its bit. Yeah, well, it's, it's strange here because people are just more inclined or less inclined to sort of vilify someone with, with a criticism of Israel mm. in, 
in the U.S. than they were even two years ago. And I'm not oh, exactly I mean, sure why. I mean, during the Republican primary, Donald Trump was, uh, you know, probably the most balanced and, you know, the most sympathetic to the Palestinians of any of the contenders until obviously he actually got the job and he reverted back into the kind of insane mode of American conservatism on Israel. Yeah. Um, People really expect him to yeah, keep, they I, keep I expecting know. him to be consistent on things. And I, I feel like mm. that's an unwise, it's an unwise assumption to make. Well, I mean, they, they keep on, they keep on trying to catch him out. Oh, yeah. Oh, you said one thing yesterday and then you said another thing today. But it's it's TV. That's how it yeah, works. Yeah, and he also just, like, does not give a shit. And they're, mm. the people, the liberals still don't get that. It's very strange to watch them be like, oh, well, um, you know, you said that, uh, you know, no one had ever had a, a concert at the Lincoln Memorial when actually, why would you lie about something? It's like, you don't get his whole thing do you like you you're still not getting his yeah. entire you know his his entire style he just had an interview uh with i, I haven't read the whole thing yet um with ft uh or with financial times and uh, uh lionel barber uh who is um kind of a goober uh is, like the editor brought like two other journalists and I just read his like preview of the article, preview of the interview before reading the interview. And he's like, we've been critical of Trump in the past, um, you know, and these are Financial Times people. They're by no means leftist, but they're like, this person should not be in charge. Well, of it depends. Some of them. I mean, it, it's not got a, a political editorial line. No. And at one point he just leans over or whatever. And it, he's like, I won. You lost. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a... And like, it, part of me too, just my general resentfulness for uh, the English loves the idea of Lionel Barber, this Oxford goober having to deal with a horrible American bore like he is the most american man uh like donald trump mm. and i was like yeah i like trump now <laughs> <laughs> go team i'm really looking forward to it though yeah trump versus the media is very hard not to take trump's side i mean i'm enjoying seeing them lose i, I i'm enjoying seeing them mm. lose because they're you know they're bad at their job and i'm glad they're being humiliated even if it's by this horrible monster like Trump is a guy who basically just sits and watch, watches TV all day and then shouts at the TV. Yeah, he's the most American man. Yeah, well, like it's what I do. It's what I assume most of the people listening to this do. You watch the news and you go, oh, fuck off. This is bullshit. <laughs> uh, except the difference is that when we shout it, no one listens. But he screams at the television and then the television has to reply to him. It's fantastic. That's why he got the job. Mm. Like, that's why, I mean, that's why he wanted the job. And, and he didn't really want it to be president, but he did want to be on TV all the time. Well, he, he lives in this kind of magical world where absolutely everything is immediately responsive to him, even if it's kind of negative. He lives in like a kind of enchanted fairy tale land where, you know, the flowers wave him hello in the morning because he shouts at the tv and then they go hi donald it's amazing he's a sentient comment section yeah. that rules the world it's like a kind of tv f feedback loop got to win the presidency uh but yeah like he yeah. was on tv then he shouted at the tv and now he's got power of life and death over everyone which is how it should be yeah 
Uh, and he doesn't care about that part so much as the TV part. Mm. That's his favorite part of the job. You know, Netflix is trying to introduce kind of uh, interactive TV where you can kind of decide how the plot goes. I mean, they should probably do it quick because if that happens, then we'll never need to have a Donald Trump again. I don't know. That sounds like a dumb idea. That's a dumb idea, Netflix. <laughs> uh, it's not going to be art, but it might save our lives. Yeah. Oh, uh, so we kind of migrated inadvertently to our, our Fortnite in review at, at home. But, but I, w- I want to hear about this Spain shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this is... The UK is getting uppity this with is Spain. fantastic. Um, so um, there's this tiny, useless bit of land uh, off the coast of Spain called Gibraltar, which was captured in the, I think, early 18th century during the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, and then was ceded to Britain in, I think, 1713, and which used to be incredibly important because it guarded the entrance to the Mediterranean. It's one of the pillars of Hercules. And, you know, it, it was an incredibly important element of the broader British imperial world system. We don't have that anymore. And while Gibraltar is still under British sovereignty, its main industry now is online gambling. Most of the UK and Irish bookies have their online gambling headquarters in Gibraltar because they've decided to specialise in that. And its other main use is inspiring bizarre, furious nationalistic jingoism in the British public every time Spain kind of goes, uh, can we have that back now? <laughs> um, the latest one was after the Article 50 Brexit process started, the EU said that Spain should have the final say on any settlement with regards to Gibraltar, at which point, like, a good 70% of the British press and many of our politicians suddenly went, oh, well, we're going to war with Spain then. We will nuke Madrid and take the whole of Spain. Michael Howard, who used to be a cabinet minister and was for a while the leader of the Conservative Party and also this truly revolting kind of pallid vampire creature when he was leader of the party they put up posters that said it's not racist to put controls on immigration with the tagline are you thinking what we're thinking that's the kind of man he is um but he said on a tv interview well 30 years ago another woman prime minister went to war against another spanish-speaking country (laughs) to defend another small group of british citizens i'm just saying i wouldn't be surprised if our prime minister showed the same kind of fortitude you know um but in the press they've Why, been yeah. comparing the sizes of the british and spanish navies yeah again um, a, another like it, it's not like the falklands are a major factor in, in the economy or something it's not like gibraltar is why why do they why are they become obsessed with this petty shit Meanwhile, knowing that they're going to lose Scotland. Well, yeah, yeah. I, mean, huh? I actually uh, wrote something about this lately in which I remarked on that. Like, uh, like Scotland may well be going, Northern Ireland may well be joining Ireland, and people in England are kind of, they're tired of it. They don't want to think about it. But as soon as anything happens to Gibraltar or the Falkland Islands, it's like their their entire heads turn the colour of a beetroot and the fucking wig just rises on a plume of steam. Exactly, it's insane. They're the, it's like they can only focus on this petty bullshit. Well, I mean, it's because they're like the last remnants of the kind of great and glorious empire that we used to have. 
Um, God. And 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 they're and and also Scottish independence. You know, it's about a constituent part of the United Kingdom wanting to leave. Um, and it's kind of thorny and complicated and also you have to sympathise with how other people think, which the English are in general not very good at at all. But Gibraltar is very easy. You just wave the flag and go, I will fucking skin any Dago who comes anywhere near the rock. Yeah. Let's move on to our third segment. But is it art? Yeah. So you informed me about this. I had never heard of this. I mean, this is something of a continuation from the last one. On the day that Article 50 was uh, invoked, the Sun did the most, the Sun being a kind of uh, grotesque tabloid newspaper in the UK. They still have tits, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, They did this very strange thing where they uh, announced that they would be covering up the tits from now on in response to the anti-tit campaigners. And they did it for about three days. And then either circulation fell or there was a war in the editorial team because about three days later they came out like, nah, just kidding. Tits, fucking lovely. Yeah, but your country still has restrictions on pornography too. It's a horrible place where you live. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't do fisting. You can't do fisting, you can't do pierce. Well, now the sun is good, in my opinion. For purely, pure, I'm pro tit <laughs> now. Anyway, uh, so, but, but what are they doing? Like, literally the White Cliffs of Dover? Yeah, they uh, projected a message onto the White Cliffs of Dover the night before Article 50 was due to be invoked, which had the sun's logo, and then in their kind of classic this is a lie font which they use for all their headlines uh messages including dover and out uh and goodbye and i think there was one which was a terrible pun like nice to see eu (sighs) and they did this kind of shortly before dawn on the white cliffs of dover and the question is is it art amber thoughts well it's a commercial that's not mutually exclusive but it does count you know it does not count in their favor I, I mean, the, the other thing is that, like, this is done. This has been done by like protesters for a while now. I, I think at Occupy, they started to do projection protests. Uh, they did it on the Metropolitan Museum of Art to like protest. I think like the, the Koch brothers and whatever, getting getting their fingers in the art world. They were trying to figure out what the what the legal precedent for it was too. I think they were trying to make it illegal, but they're like, light is not graffiti, and you know. Whatever this is, the projection thing has been a, been something that people have done all, all over the world. Yeah, and, and it's also something that has had its part in in various kind of uh, uh, artistic projects and yeah. um, cinema in general. But I think it's usually bad. I mean, I think I may think most I think most protest art is oh, yeah. is incredibly bad. Well, I mean, the question um, isn't if it's good; it's terrible. I'm probably more likely to enjoy a commercial, but I don't know. I think there's something actually more dynamic about it being a commercial. Like, I kind of, I, I kind of like that they're just like that's so blatantly mm. vulgar, uh, and, and not just to do it on the side of a building in an urban center or whatever, but to to put it on like the White Cliffs of Dover, which are very like. I, 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 I don't want to admit that anything that isn't in America is breathtaking, but they are pretty breathtaking. I mean, they're mediocre Which players. means we deserve them. And- Come and take them. <laughs> if, if you were American, though, you would actually go in and carve into the face of the rock a commercial. That's what we did with, the, with Mount Rushmore. So 
really, it's kind of a half measure, just projecting. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think there's like two important precedents to the uh, Sun projecting its newspaper onto the White Cliffs of Dover. One is the Cerner Abbas Giant, which is, I, I guess, a bit more in the American tradition. It's this supposedly very ancient image of a uh, nude man with an erect penis and a big club, uh, which is being carved into a hillside in Dorset. Uh, and is meant to be kind of Neolithic, but probably isn't. Um, and and again, it's using kind of uh, the chalky landscape of the area to uh, project this kind of symbol of uh, fuck you, I've got a big dick in a club, which can be seen from miles away as a kind of uh, warning to neighbouring tribes and peoples. So I have um, two big dicks is, is the... Yeah, 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 yeah essentially. There's a lot of kind of uh, imagistic similarity between the club and the dick. So, I mean, I mean, that's the first uh, precedent for this. Uh, the other one is the 1999 incident in which uh, a men's magazine, I think FHM, to uh, publicise its new issue of the 50 Sexiest Women Alive, projected a nude image of the model Gail Porter onto the Houses of Parliament in what has somehow become a kind of epoch-defining moment in the british cultural that's psyche, kind of funny uh and which was probably not in, i kind of support that it, it probably wasn't intended as art but it kind of ended up being art almost by accident yeah i, th- I think i think uh titties on parliament is is has um more justified claim to art oh, oh you're you're missing the best bit actually uh, it's from the back, so you can see her ass, but they meticulously made sure that not even a pixel of tit was visible in the entire thing. Mm. See, I kind of like that. So, so in a way, I, I think that tracks very well with, you know, the, the, the sun's... You can have tits, but you can't have social welfare. You know, it's on a continuum <laughs> with it. Yeah, I mean, it's vulgar, which I like, uh, but I think that the sun on Dover is... Eh, eh. It's been done better, clearly. Actually, I think what unites all three of them, the uh, the giant on the hill, the Sun newspaper on the cliff, and Gail Porter's ass on the House of Parliament, uh, is that none of them were intended as art. The, the giant, if its ancient origins are correct, would not have been a purely aesthetic object. It would have been uh, a warning or something to use in a religious ritual. The uh, Gail Porter image was meant to promote a magazine, but nobody remembers the magazine. They remember the projection. Uh, and I guess it depends on how Brexit goes, whether the whether the thing that we remember about it most is the sun projecting on the white cliffs of Dover. If that ends up being the case, then I would say that, yes, it has become art. Yeah. Uh, but if we all die in a war with Spain, then it's not art. Time will tell. I, I think I agree with yeah. you. We'll, we'll watch. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, by the way... I'm looking at this now, and I, <laughs> because I'm looking at it uh, on the Sun's website, uh, to the right, uh, stomach churning videos shows teenager whose head was almost hacked off by bloodthirsty mush- muggers, and it's titled "Pain in the Neck and Hacked Off" is in caps. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm getting a good consolidation <laughs> of the Sun's best material <laughs> right here, just on the side, just from the headlines. Th- th- this is our uh, uh, this is our media. Uh, in fact, the, uh, today, the Sun newspaper, uh, Jeremy Corbyn ha- is trying to uh, introduce a policy by which all primary school children will get free school meals, which should be uh, 
kind of unproblematic, but the uh, the yeah. centrists have fucking lost their mind over it. Uh, and all of these kind of casually right wing <laughs> people are saying, oh, but what if what what if some of the rich kids get the meals as well? Uh, obviously, out of their their long standing commitment to preventing any policy that might help rich people. God, this is what Hillary Clinton did with the when when she was arguing against like free higher education. She's like, well, I don't think that people mm. who make a lot of money. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, because you're you're. You you're really uh, your biggest concern here is making sure that uh, that uh, wealthy people don't get the perks that the rest of you as if any of them are going to be going to the same public universities that like we pieces mm. of shit go to anyway. It's like uh, it's like you could have universal provision for everyone, or we could have an extra layer of bureaucracy and spreadsheets to keep out the undeserving. Um, and it's, I think, that kind of attitude that prevents anything good from ever happening. I, I think some of the people are true technocrats, and they, and they like that stuff. I think it's particularly in America, kind of like the Vox wonk people love the idea. Like, they love they love Obamacare because mm. they're like, it's great. It's like a game. You can, you know, spend three hours online trying to figure out how to deal with a head wound. Yeah, they, it's like shopping. It's like shopping. Yeah, if you don't it's get like the best it's deal, high stakes shopping. It's incredibly high stakes shopping. It is shopping in a dystopian future. Yeah, uh, but most of the people that actually design these programs don't do it because they think games are fun. They do it because they know that like the these bureaucratic things. I think it's by design. I think they want to keep poor people out. I've tried to get. I remember yeah. trying to get food stamps in New York City around Christmas two years ago, and it was literally impossible to get a hold of anyone. And they're like, okay, well, you have to make an appointment to make an appointment to make an appointment. That I, I, I don't think it's it's designed because they're like, well, we want to make sure that you know people who make too much money are getting. I think I think they're like, okay, well, poor people clearly don't have time for, for this shit. No one will claim their so-called rightful benefits, even within the ridiculously stringent uh, definition of you know uh, of deserving that we have designed. No one will have time to do it. I, it's it's meant to deter poor people from from using these services anyway universal programs it's not even about uh repressing specific people it's about building these kind of technologies of power where you can just bureaucratize every aspect of everyday life and then turn that machinery against anyone i mean uh, there are uh, a bunch of studies that people were publicizing today about the uh the free school meals which showed that uh if you give free school meals to it's everyone so easier. then it's everyone so much gets easier them. to just give yeah. everyone yeah if, if yeah. you if then you introduce means to, to, to make sure that you know kids who are well off don't get them then what usually happens is a bunch of kids who really aren't well off don't get them either uh yeah and and yes. it's also more expensive because means testing costs loads of money and also they suck because here's the mm. thing about universal programs they work best when middle class people use them because things that pe we give to poor people are shitty i mean you look at a country mm. with uh well i mean there aren't that many anymore but you know a place with public housing that that public housing is accessible to people that aren't just the most destitute people in the country. It's better public housing. But when you when you set it aside for the absolute poorest people, they're, they internalize this kind of, um, well, they should be happy for anything they get. So public housing is worse. If you want the meals to be good, if you want the housing to be good, it has to be 
extremely accessible and it has to be so good that middle class people want it. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about universal provision is it creates a sense of shared ownership in society rather than it just being uh, kind of doled out to people by a paternalistic elite, uh, which is obviously what, uh, you know, the centrists will fight tooth and nail to prevent people feeling because there isn't meant to be any shared ownership of anything. Yep. But um, anyway, what I was going to say was that the uh, the son was uh, attempting to attack Corbyn's free school meals policy. They didn't know exactly how to do that because make sure that children aren't hungry is probably as unambiguously good as, as you're going to get. So uh, when they were describing his comments, they just said, uh, uh, no child in the UK should ever be unfed at school, the hapless socialist said. Uh, That's about the level of Amelia. <laughs> he is a little hapless. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he'd be much happier in his allotment. Yeah, yeah he's great. And they're not completely wrong. <laughs> He is a little hapless. He is a little hapless. Yeah, but um, uh, it's interesting how they're trying to combine the notions of socialist haplessness and children not dying of starvation. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, it doesn't even have to be death. They can just walk around immiserated and uncomfortable while their brains don't grow at a proper mm. rate. Yeah, or, or just be hungry and not do well at school. And then, you know, in our glorious meritocracy get a shitty job and then die yeah. 10 years early develop the sort of anxiety that comes with chronic hunger where you always feel like something's missing and constantly feared the you know uh the, the 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 lack of things throughout your entire life and that becomes the guiding principle of everything you do from then on um hapless socialist said <laughs> on that uh on that note i think it's been about an hour yep uh, well, stay hungry, folks. <laughs> yep, <laughs> thanks. Uh, see you next time. Bye. <laughs>